have a seat. Uh, if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you do, James chapter 5 is where we're going to be at this morning. James chapter 5. Uh, I was with you not too long ago, I think. Maybe it, maybe it was a while ago. It just doesn't seem that long. But we were, uh, you guys were going through Proverbs just starting, and you guys are still trekking through Proverbs. I checked in last night and listened to uh, Pastor Pat uh, share some wisdom with you. Uh, the last time I was here, I, I noted that uh, there is a lot of strong connections between uh, Proverbs and the book of James. And so Proverbs uh, gives you wisdom how to live a life wisely from God's view. Uh, that's important. We have Proverbs in our day. Uh, many hands make light work. That just tells you how to live life wise as an American. Um, the book of Proverbs tells you how to live life wise as a follower of God. So it gives you not just what's wise in the temporary here and now, but also from God's perspective. Uh, so there are some things that are counterintuitive in Proverbs uh, that you wouldn't come to with just a natural understanding. But if you want wisdom, read Proverbs. If you want to be told how to live as a Christian, read James, because he tells you how to live as a Christian. He's very exhortative. Um, I, I think if I remember the math correctly, uh, there are, uh, for every other verse, there's a command to do in the book of James. Sometimes he rapid fires it and then he skips over it a couple of verses, but on average, for every other verse, there's a command to tell you what you should be doing as a Christian. So if you're the kind of Christian who enjoys being told what to do because you just want that direct kind of wisdom, read the book of James. Um, it, he, he's there for you uh, in that He's, he's going to give practical wisdom in how to live your life as a believer. There's also a strong parallel between uh, the entire book of James and what was uh, a part of at least this morning's uh, scripture reading, which is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5 uh, through chapter 7. If you've never read the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it was mentioned I'm the, the dean. I've never been in, introduced as the dean of anything before, but the dean of the School of Pastoral Ministry. I'm going to give you a homework assignment if you've never read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, that's not a book you have to go to a bookstore to, to buy. It's, it's in your Bible. I mentioned that because I mentioned this is my own home church, and there were some brand new believers. And they're like, we, we try to find that book that you mentioned, the Sermon on the Mount. It's in your Bible. <laughs> Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. If you've never read the Sermon on the Mount in a single sitting, I encourage you to do it. Uh, and then if you're going to ever study the book of James, read the Sermon on the Mount and then read your passage and then read the Sermon on the Mount again. And you'll probably notice that James is explaining and applying a portion of the Sermon on the Mount in the section of James that you're reading. Uh, there's a strong parallel between uh, the two. Uh, and so uh, James is uh, very much interested in telling you how to live your life, which is good uh, for some of us for sure, but good for all of us uh, in general as well. Uh, again, uh, I'm Austin. Uh, my wife is here. My son is here. If you haven't met us and you would like to talk with us, uh, we'd love to, to speak with you as well. Uh, James chapter 5. If you would stand with me as we read God's word together, uh, we're going to read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Uh, it's the section we'll be covering uh, this morning together. So James chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we read, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded and their corrosion will be, witness, will be a witness against you 
and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up uh, treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the uh, laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived on uh, on the earth in pleasure and luxury, and have fattened your hearts as in the days of as in the day of slaughter you have condemned you have murdered the just and he does not resist you therefore be patient brethren until the coming of the lord see how the farmer uh, waits for uh, the precious f- uh, fruit of the earth waiting patiently for it until he receives the early and re- latter rain you also be patient Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed uh, who endured. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth uh, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity uh, you've given us to be a part of your family, Lord, to, uh, to enjoy a relationship Uh, not just with each other, but with you. Uh, We call each other brother and sister because uh, you've allowed each one of us to call you our Father. Lord, and what a sweet time it is to worship you uh, with borrowed words to express the the things that are in our own hearts. Uh, And Lord, now, uh, even as you've given attention to our words, as we've poured out our heart to you, we ask that we would give attention to your word as you pour it out to us. Lord, so we ask that you would uh, sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, Lord, to receive all that you have for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, As is my unintentional custom, I have two sermon titles. We actually, I think, have the sermon title. We have a sermon title up somewhere. Um, The short sermon title, if you're taking notes, is this, uh, Present Riches and sorrows in light of eternity. Present riches and sorrows in light of eternity. That's the short sermon title. I always have to condense my, my sermon titles because they're normally longer. This was the original one. I still, I still stand by it, but it's, it's a bit much to write. Uh, the coming righteous judgment of God compels us to live our present life in light of eternity. You understand why? Now I needed to be shortened, uh, but again, I'll, I'll mention it at the end of uh, our, our time together, and it'll make sense at that point, I hope. Uh, the coming righteous judgment of God compels us to live our present lives in light of eternity. And we're going to see why that is the case this morning, because James is uh, going to make essentially two kinds of points, the negative and the positive for us this morning. Uh, and so my outline is, is fairly basic. There are three points. It's basically two points of text and one point of application. Our first point is going to be Uh, The first six verses, Uh, the joy of the wicked rich uh, will end because of God's just 
judgment. The joy of the wicked rich will end because of God's just judgment. Um, Notice there in verses 1 through 6 that we're talking about, who we're talking about is the wicked rich, not the godly rich. We're not just talking about rich people in general. We're talking about a specific category of rich people, not uh, the godly rich. And there's a lot of godly rich people mentioned in scripture. Um, If you think of Abraham, you know, he's the father of faith. Uh, Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness, we're told in Genesis uh, 15.6. But we're also told in Genesis that he had over 300 servants that were born in his own house, which means he had 300 other servants who gave birth to those servants. Um, so that, you know, he's, we were talking about somebody who has some money, but a man who was of great faith. In fact, he's called the father of faith. Um, also, Uh, Job in scripture, a man whom God boasted about his righteousness and his walk with the Lord, fabulously wealthy, lots of wealth. And so we're we're not talking about the godly rich, and we're we're actually uh, told about godly rich in the book of James, early in in James, in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, the riches of others in the church can sometimes lie to us about the importance of them. Uh, It says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should come also in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judged with evil, uh, evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, God ha- has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom uh, with which uh, he promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man. So in the church, he gives instruction about that, but he doesn't com- condemn Christians for being rich. He just doesn't want us to evaluate people the way the world evaluates people according to dollars and cents, but according to how God views it. And in fact, often the case is, is that those who are riches in, richest in faith are poorest <laughs> in dollars. And that's the point he was making earlier. Um, but, you know, riches don't just warp our view of others in the church. Riches can actually warp our own view of ourselves. We're told in Revelation uh, chapter 3, Uh, Verse 17, concerning the church of Laodicea, there was a a, a church uh, who was a fabulously wealthy church. That's not a bad thing in and of itself, but it warped their view of themselves. Uh, Listen to what uh, Jesus in his letter to the church in Laodicea wrote. He says, because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I'm not sure if you can have two more opposite kind of descriptions, could you not? You have on the one side, uh, well, for all intensive purposes, an American, <laughs> right? He's like, I've become rich. Uh, the land of prosperity is where you can do this. You have become rich, I ha- I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing. Because I have money, I need nothing else. It sounds like a good American <laughs> boy, right? God's perspective of the same exact individual is this. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And perhaps the only thing worse than being wretched, poor, blind, miserable, and naked is being all of those things and not knowing it. How did they get there? They thought they had 
what they needed because what they had was money. It warps our, it has the ability not only for us to warp our view of others, but warp the view of ourselves. Money can also uh, motivate us into all kinds of wrong things. And I think if anybody understands this the best, it's America. <laughs> we can get people to do all kinds of wrong things for money. Uh, and the scripture tells us and warns us of this in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, it says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and harmful lusts which uh, drowned men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice it, it's not money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money. Money by itself is not going to hurt anyone, but the love of money will hurt almost anyone. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in, the, in their greediness, piercing themselves through with many sorrows. I know you guys are in the book of Proverbs, and if you've been reading through it, there's the wise warning against seeking riches first. Uh, Proverbs, it's one of my favorite Proverbs. It's not uncommon for me to say that phrase. <laughs> so uh, if you hear me say it more than once, this is why. Uh, Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5. Verse 5 in particular is my favorite, but the context is 4 and 5. Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5. Do not overwork to be rich, because your own understanding cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings and fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Can I get an amen? <laughs> uh, they call it cash flow for a reason, right? It comes in, it goes out. It's like garage space. It doesn't really matter how much space there is. It's just not enough. <laughs> it's going to fill up. Uh, no matter how much you put in, it's just going to fly away. I love the question there, though, in Proverbs 23, verse 5. It says, will you set your eyes on that which is not? I love that question because it implies that there's something there is you should be setting your eyes on. But if you're setting your eyes on riches, you're setting your eyes on that which is not. And we'll see why in our passage today in, in uh, James chapter 5. Uh, these are wicked uh, rich. And we see that in the text itself in verse 4 and verse 6. If you notice there in verse uh, 4, uh, we're told, Indeed, the wages of the laborers uh, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. Notice down in verse 6, You have condemned, you have murdered the just. So in this list, we have fraud, we have false condemnation, and we have murder. We would call those wicked things. <laughs> These people aren't in the church as believers. They might be in the church. Uh, I don't know why James would write this in, in general, but if he's writing to all Jewish people in, in general, he, he might have them in mind. I think he's setting the stage for what's going to come after verse 6. Um, but these are wicked people, but they are also rich people. Notice there in verse 3, 4, and 5, he says uh, they have clothing and money in excess, they have fields and laborers, and they live on the earth in pleasure and luxury. Uh, these are well-to-do people. Uh, and you might be like me uh, in this moment and be like, well, I'm not rich, so I don't have to worry about this. I'm like, well, I'm, I, I can sympathize with you. I'm poor, and I have the paperwork to prove it. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's my very first date with my present wife. 
went something like this. I'm poor now, and I don't plan on changing that in the future. If you're okay with that, we can have another date. We're married now, so it obviously went well, but <laughs> um, I, I'm not rich now, nor do I have plans on being rich in, in, in this life. Uh, but there, there's a, a phrase from, uh, was it a Fiddler on the Roof, a, a song, If I Was a Rich Man. It's very popular in my church. Everybody knows the song. My, my pastor can actually do the dance quite well. Uh, it's, it's quite entertaining, but I, I don't mind singing that song now, but that's not a song I want to sing in eternity. How can we tell if we are or want to be one of these wicked rich people? And this is going to be an important question because of what happens to them. How can we tell if we are one of them or want to be one of them? Two questions. Do you possess your possessions or do they possess you? Do you possess your possessions or do they possess you? How can you tell if you possess your possessions or they possess you? Is there anything you have now that you can't imagine living without? Can you, is, is there something you have that you could not give away if God asked you to give it away? If you can't give it away, then you don't possess it. It possesses you. It's become your Lord, and you're not lording over it. Anger and desire was what uh, Cain and Abel, they were, you know, Cain killed his brother Abel, and and. God's warning to him was, you know, sin lies at the door, but you should rule over it. And he did not, and it ruled him. Our possessions are good gifts from God, but we don't serve the possessions. We serve the provider, right? I have a job. This is not my only job. I, I buy, drive, I don't know. I, I do lots of different things, but I work at a, uh, a Lowe's, and Lowe's, I, I get insurance, I get a paycheck, I, you know, be able to do a lot of things, but Lowe's is not my provider. Lowe's is the provision. The Lord is my provider. The provision is going to change. The provider will not. Right? That's, that's the way it is. The Lord is my provider, and I, I, I want to love my Lord. I want to love the provider more than the provision. And it takes some maturity for that, right? Uh, there's a point in time in, in a kid's life when uh, they, they love gifts and they're more excited about the gift than the person who gave the gift. And then there's a change that happens. I don't know when it happens. It happens different times for different people, I'm sure. But the change that happens is they start loving the giver more than the gift. They'll actually set down whatever it was that was given and give the person a hug. You've got to train kids to do these things. Hopefully you're training kids to do these things. But... There's a, there's a shift, and it's a maturity thing. Uh, and, and there's a shift in our own life in the Lord, and it's a maturity thing where we, we learn to love the Lord because he's our provider rather than the provision that he provides. And it's an important heart change. But this is, what, this is where it connects to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, uh, all the way through the end of the chapter, really. Uh, 6, 19, and 20 uh, Jesus gives this warning, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, uh, where thieves do not break in and steal. In the next verse it says, For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Uh, and so you can, you can get rich now, um, but uh, 
when you die, like, there's this phrase that happens sometimes in this kind of a preaching moment. They're like, you know, this fabulously wealthy man, and he, and he died, and somebody came to, up to the family and was like, well, well how, much, how much did he leave behind? And the answer was, everything. <laughs> I didn't take anything with him. <laughs> everything was left. And that's, that's the unfortunate place where these wicked rich are at. If you notice, he invites these rich, these wicked rich, there in verse 1, to weep and howl. It's just really cry and, and be miserable about where they're at. Imagine how, how weird that would be. You just like find somebody who just won the lotto, find somebody who you know, bought Apple share stocks in bulk when they were cheap, and, and you could go up to them and say, you should, be, you should be crying right now. How counterintuitive is that in our culture? Like, you've got lots of money. You should really be sorry about that. Like, are you sure? Because <laughs> I, I feel like I shouldn't have to be sorry about <laughs> this. Uh, all of these fabulous possessions. But he, and he's going to get to the reason why. Uh, the things they prize now are going away. The things they prize now are going away. Notice there in verse 2 and 3, uh, even verse 1, he says, your, uh, the miseries that are coming, uh, your riches are corrupted, your, your, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and your silver are corroded. So not only are they not going to be helpful in eternity, but even in the present time, they're not that great. You've got so much good things, you don't have time to use them. All right, so I'm going to give you a little historical context here. Uh, back in the day, you had the clothes you wore. And if you, you were doing pretty well for yourself, you had a second pair of clothes to wear so you could wash one <laughs> and wear one. Then you were doing all right. You are middle class. You had two, two changes of clothes, <laughs> the one you're wearing and another set. This person has so many clothes that they can't wear them often enough without them being destroyed on their own. Meanwhile, in the same context in which they're living, there are people all around them who only have the clothes on their back. And they're lacking the compassion to give something that they're just letting rot away in their own closet. Now, we live in a different context than that, but, you know, clothed ministries are still helpful ministries. But in their day, it was even more so. It was more costly. It was more, it would be like bringing somebody from poverty to middle class and giving them a garment. And they've got theirs rotting away in the closet. But all of these things, they're not even being used or being useful to them. But even worse to that, worse than that, God's judgment on them is coming. Uh, it's not, you know, far away. It's a lot closer than they think. Uh, notice there in verse, uh, the second half of verse 3 through verse 4, uh, we're told, uh, you have heaped up treasures, uh, treasure in the last days. Uh, it'd be like, having all of the Monopoly money while playing Monopoly at the end of the game. Uh, but you did it by forcefully stealing from people. And, you know, it's like, that. okay, it's not only is it not going to be useful after the game is over, um, but the relationships you hurt in the process is going to continue to weigh on you, right? There's, there's future consequences to the immediate but you're, you're like, but I have all this monopoly money. Life is great. I should be happy. I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> no, you should not. 
judgment is coming. Imagine if two kids were doing that. One was totally cheating the other one, and mom is standing at the door. <laughs> judgment is coming. <laughs> you, should, you should weep now. <laughs> Show some remorse so maybe the, the spankings won't be <laughs> as intense. Uh, judgment is coming. Notice there's kind of this court case scenario is happening. There are witnesses, there is a judge, and there's a time of judgment. Notice there are three witnesses given to us. Uh, the first is, uh, is related to the second, and it's quite interesting there in verse 3. Uh, we're told, your gold and your silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be, notice, a witness against you. The good that they could have done with the wealth that they had but didn't do is going to be the first witness against them. The wealth that they, was given to them that they, instead of using for God's good work, they let just rot away instead. God's going to hold them accountable for it. And in fact, it's the corrosion itself that will be there on the witness stand. So imagine some like worn out 20s on the witness stand. Yes, he had me stuffed in his couch and he could have given me to a homeless person, but he did not. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Ben Franklin. Sit down. (laughs) The second is similar to it. Verse 4, notice, uh, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. Shortening that sentence, the wages cry out. They're witnessing against the wickedness of how they obtained the wealth that they had. The wealth itself stands as witness. This is not uncommon for the Bible to per- personify or to make a, like a person an inanimate object. The very first murder in Scripture where Cain killed Abel, God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out against you. In this circumstances, the wages themselves are crying out for justice to the God of justice. Hey, injustice has been done here with me. I belong to them, and I was never given to them. Finally, and not insignificant of itself, uh, notice there at the end of verse 4, the cries of the reapers. All three of these witnesses, and only one of them is a person. Hidden sin is not hidden from the Lord. Nobody else may know about it, but the Lord knows about it. And really, the Lord is the only one who really needs to know about it to be a just judge in it. But for those who are suffering on the other end of this, it's good to know that (laughs) the injustice of not receiving charity that could be given, the injustice of not receiving wages that were due, and even your own cries are heard by the Lord. And this is, again, going to flow into our next section here in a minute. But each one of those are standing as witnesses, and the judge hears. Notice uh, there at the end of verse 4, the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Uh, That's a Hebrew phrase because, again, James was writing to Jewish people so they would know what's up. So if you're Gentile in the house, (laughs) this this part's for you. It's, It's... It's a transliteration of a Hebrew word which means Lord of hosts. Still confused, me too. All right, moving on. It says he's 
the Lord of the, he's the Lord of hosts, the commander of the Lord's army. Somebody who's able to execute justice. <laughs> Just think about like a general walking with his army behind him saying, I've heard your injustice. Does James' instruction to the wicked rich make sense now? <laughs> Weep and howl. <laughs> Just judgment is coming up upon you. The Lord of hers has seen and heard what has happened. When, when is the judgment? The time of judgment is in the last days. Notice there at the end of verse 3, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. This comes to a, a, another favorite proverb of mine. Uh, Proverbs 11, verse 4 Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. I like this proverb because of the irony of the first part of the statement. Riches do not profit. Just think about that for a moment. (laughs) When do riches not profit? In the day of judgment. It doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are when you stand before the Lord. What matters is how righteous you are. And you can be fabulously righteous and not have a penny to your name. And you can be fabulously wealthy (laughs) and not have one cent of righteousness to your name. And riches do not profit in the day of wrath. I was going to begin with an illustration, but this is not a foreign concept to us. We all understand this in our own way. If you're a student you should study in light of report cards that your parents will see. (laughs) If you're an employee, you should work in light of a paycheck that is coming. Uh, If you see your dentist like you should once a year, you should brush your teeth like you're going to see your dentist once a year, right? If you're you're going to the doctor, you should eat healthy and exercise like he's going to weigh you and then have a conversation with you. The quality of all of those experiences depends not on that day, but on every day that leads up to that day. We all know this, and yet we all struggle with it. In the midst of a hard work schedule, in the midst of a tough study session, in the midst of a long day, and we don't want to just brush our teeth, even though we're going to see the dentist. (laughs) In the midst of, you know, I I stress eat, I I eat when it's hard, so I eat good food. I, I eat to celebrate, so I eat good food. <laughs> this is a rough life. We all understand it's not an easy thing. That's what makes it hard, but we are to live our lives in light of eternity. What the wicked, wealthy fail to do is to do that. He turns a corner here to talk about the suffering Christians. Suffering Christians. Uh, in verses 7 through 12, suffering Christians need to be patient and speak righteously because God's judgment is coming. Christian, uh, suffering Christians need to be patient and speak righteously because of God's judgment which is coming. The command there, notice in verse 7 when it says, therefore be patient, and then again in verse 8, you also be patient. Uh, in the original language that uh, this book was written in, the very first word in the sentence is not therefore, it's not brethren, although some translations have it that way. Uh, The New King James, which I'm reading from, it says therefore be patient. The very first word in the Greek is be patient, and then it gets to the rest of the sentence. (laughs) And it's in light of everything that he's saying, right? 
we want vengeance to be mine, and we want it to be now. Uh, but neither one of those things are true. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that vengeance is bad. It just says it's not yours. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, and in his time he will. It's not ours to give out because we do it wrong. And it's not our timing because we do it now, unless it's for us, in which case it would be way later. Right? With us, we want God to be patient. <laughs> With everyone else in front of us on the highway. <laughs> the other co-workers that aren't just on it all the time, our boss who can't quite figure out our schedule, our teacher who won't assign a homework assignment and then not change it the last minute. We want just judgment for them, but we, we want it now. But for us, you know, patience and mercy and grace. What we need now is patient, uh, patience. The command to be patient comes from an interesting word. Uh, it means to be uh, long fused, to use a rough translation of the word. Now, we don't really use the phrase long fused, but we do have the opposite of that, do we not? Short fused. What does that mean? <laughs> Somebody who wants judgment now <laughs> in an explosive, <laughs> immediate way, right? So uh, the opposite of it, as I, I looked it up in one of these uh, dictionaries, and it, it explained it in terms of opposite uh, so the opposite is hasty anger or punishment. Uh, we need to endure patiently as opposed to losing faith or giving up. So as opposed to losing faith or giving up, it involves exercising understanding and patience toward uh, people as opposed to circumstances. There's another word that they could have used in the Greek that has more to do with circumstances. Uh, this word has more to do with people. Right? So if you're the laborer from verse 4 who was defrauded funds, you worked and you didn't get paid that you were owed, the person there, patience is what they need. Long-fused is what God requires of them. Why? Because they're not the judge. Judgment is going to come, but not by them this, is, uh, this kind of patient, patience is what, uh, if you know some of the parables of Jesus, Jesus talked about a, a parable of forgiveness and a, a guy who owed an unpayable debt. Uh, we're told in Matthew 18, uh, he couldn't pay the debt and he asked for patience with his master and that he would pay all even though he wasn't able to. Uh, this is the kind of patience that God has with sinners in the world right now. This is the patience that he had with us while we were yet sinners. The patience that God has with sinners right now, we're told of, this is the same word that's used in 2 Peter verse th- uh, chapter 3, verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, that is, coming judgment, uh, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering, that's patient, toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason why God's not, you know, zapping people with lightning bolts in front of you for cutting you off immediately is because he actually wants them to be saved. So he's not asking us to do something that he's not already doing. In fact, what he's calling us to is to get in line with what he's doing now. He's being patient with them, not because he wants you to suffer longer or not because he enjoys the wickedness that they're doing, but because he wants them to come to 
repentance, to be saved from the just judgment that's due to them, that they're storing up for themselves. So he says, be patient. That's the command. Well, what does patience look like? I know I kind of described it, but he actually gives us some examples. How helpful? He gives us three examples. A farmer, a prophet, and a person named Job, which, if you look at his name, looks like Job. So, Job. That's how that's pronounced. Anyway, the farmer, verse 7b, second part of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Uh, If you have a toddler, this would be fun to do. Give them a seed, have them plant it. They'll show you what not patience looks like as a farmer. They'll plant it, water it, come back the next day, and they're like, why isn't it producing fruit? Patience. (laughs) It's, It's growing. It takes time. But in time, it will come. You can't be an impatient farmer. You can't. (laughs) It's not possible to be a farmer and to be impatient with the crop. You have to be patient as a farmer, but it's, it's a confident expectation, right? This is coming. It's not here, but it is going to be here. His second, uh, example, uh, that he points us to is more pointed, I believe, is the prophet, verses 10 through 11. Notice what he says there in verse 10. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of, notice this, suffering and patience. That's what I wanted to title this sermon. <laughs> suffering and patience. All right, let's all pray. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to church today? Um, prophets, they spoke in the name of the Lord, and so they live happily ever after, Right? No. <laughs> if, you, if you haven't read any of the prophets, go back and read some of the prophets and hear their life experience. It's consistent, actually, with Jesus' own life experience. I used to ask this trick question to my junior hires when I was a junior high youth pastor. Did Jesus' life end well? Well, <laughs> did Jesus' life end well? It depends on the perspective you want to take, right? If you're talking about comfortability, No. All of his friends forsook him. It's emotional. God forsook him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus spoke the reality of what David wrote in the psalm, Psalm 22. David said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's the reality of how he felt. Jesus quoted it because that was the reality of the situation. He was rejected by those who should have known he was coming. He was forsaken by his friends. He was even... Rejected by the Father because of our sins in that moment. But his life ended well in light of eternity because his death purchased his bride. His death brought us life. And I believe even Jesus would say his life ended well. But you can only say that from eternity. You can't say that in the present. The prophets experienced very much the same. They spoke in the name of the Lord and they suffered for it, but they suffered patiently. And that not that the hardest time <laughs> to be patient? I'm like, I can be patient when I'm not suffering. It's like, here's a day spa. Please be spa- patient. <laughs> a little foot bubble scrubbles going on and like massage. And like, it's not hard to be patient in that. It's when your car's overheating. And this actually happened once where my, my, I was with my dad in a truck that had no air conditioning in the middle of a sandstorm that was 115 degrees. So we had to have the heater on and the windows up. Patience is what's needed in that moment. But isn't it the hardest to have patience then? 
Jesus actually says in the Sermon on the Mount, we read it a little bit this morning, Matthew 5, 11 through 12, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, Jesus would say later on in Matthew 10, 22, you have, uh, and you will be hated for by all for my name's sake. These are promises you won't find in those little promise books. Still promises. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, uh, sorry, 2 Timothy 3:12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's going to be a cost to doing what's right in the present now. It's not going to be fun, but it's going to be worth it. When is patient needed till? This is the good part. Long fused. We can have a 10-hour fuse. Something's still going to happen at the end of that, right? There's, we don't have to be patient for all of eternity. We have to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Notice verse 7 and 8. Uh, the end of verse uh, 7, waiting. Uh, uh, be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's really near. And as a believer, as, a, as just a human being, we stand on the doorstep of eternity. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to make it home today driving my car. Like, it's a crazy weekend happening, right? I don't know when I'm going to step into eternity. As a believer, I also believe that the Lord could come back at any moment in time. The Lord's coming in my own life could be sooner than in your life, or we can all experience it at the same time when the Lord comes, but I need to be patient until I die. It's just the rest of my life. That's it. (laughs) Just be patient for the rest of your life. Okay, amen, let's close in prayer. No, just kidding. (laughs) But it's only for the rest of your life, and from the standpoint of eternity, what is the rest of your life? It's not much. (laughs) It's very short. And in fact, it's an opportunity for us to demonstrate the character of God that we're not going to have in eternity. So it's until the coming of the Lord. Uh, how, how can we be patient in the midst of suffering? I hope you're asking this question because you're like, okay, I know I need to do it, but how do I do it? Uh, we're, we're given the, that example of, of Job, right? He's our third example, but he also teaches us how to be patient in the midst of suffering Notice there in verse 11, indeed you count them, indeed we count them blessed, that's the prophets uh, who endured. You have heard of the perseverance of Job. Uh, Side homework assignment, if you've not heard of the perseverance of Job, read the book of Job. Now I'm going to warn you up front, it's really long. It's an epic poem, which means it's really, really long. Um, you can shorten it by reading the first few chapters in the beginning and the, first, uh, the last few chapters at the end. In the middle, they're arguing about why people suffer. And God says at the end, they were all wrong. So you can read it and understand they're not right. Um, but at the end, God allows suffering for his own purposes. And we're given a summary of that here in verse 11. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. So notice he says two things we, ha- we can learn from Job. The things we hear and the things we see. We hear of his perseverance, but we see the end intended by the Lord. In the midst of present suffering, 
it's important to see the end, the end goal, right? Staying up late studying is not easy. It is hard. Having a good grade on your report card, keeping that in mind while you're studying is good. When you're having a rough day at work, keeping in mind the paycheck that is coming is a good thing, <laughs> right? Diet and exercise. Knowing that summer is coming and you want to go to the beach <laughs> is a good thing to keep in mind while you're not eating all the things you want to eat and you are getting up earlier and exercising and doing things that your body was like, you know, we could just take a nap. <laughs> right? The end, in, having the end in mind is, is, is what we need. And seeing the end intended by the Lord makes being patient now a little bit more bearable. Know that God is working all things together for good. All things, not just some things. And even the things that others intend for evil, God is working together for good. Paul had this perspective, and he was one who's well acquainted with suffering. He writes in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Did you hear that? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. How would you compare a step in a mud puddle with a step if your next step is going to be on the moon? How do you compare those? You can't. Who cares about the mud puddle? (laughs) But notice what he did say. He said, I consider my present sufferings. You know what a lot of people are doing this weekend? They're doing a lot of things to get their mind off of the present suffering. Why? Because they don't have the future hope we have. There's no future glory for them. Consider your present sufferings. Do it, but do it in light of eternity. And you'll be like, yeah. So I lost my park place on my Monopoly game. Is that going to devastate me? Only if I'm way too in the game, right? We can be devastated by things that don't affect eternity at all when we're way too invested in the here and now and not in eternity. Christians not only need to be patient, but they need to speak righteously even while they are suffering. And isn't that the hardest time to speak righteously (laughs) while you're suffering? If you don't understand this, take kids on a road trip. (laughs) See how much random righteous speaking happens spontaneously. What needs to be done? Notice uh, verse 11 and verse 12. Verse 11, do not grumble against one another. I'm sorry, that's verse 8. Do not grumble against one another. James actually says not to do that earlier uh, in James chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, Do not grumble against one another. Uh, And the other one in in verse 12, uh, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a person of your word. Like, but no, nobody else is being a person of their word. He lied and cheated to me, and that's how he got into his place. He's like, I don't care what he's doing. <laughs> you said you would do something, do it. Don't always need to say, uh, I swear on a stack of Bibles, or as was common when I was growing up, I swear on my mother's grave. I'm like, your mo- mom's not even dead yet. Like, they, they were, in their day, you'd, you'd only have to keep an oath if you swore by the temple. And then it was, you swore by the gold of the temple. That's how you know you really meant it. And we have all of these things. And if the people who normally have to swear like that make these ridiculous kind of promises, does that inspire you to trust them? No. They're having to speak like that because they're not normally ones who keep their word. 
And it's really easy to not keep your word in a world that gets ahead by not keeping their word. But that's not like Christ. And in fact, that's something that God judges. Uh, Why we need to do it, notice at the uh, end of verse uh, 8 and the end of verse 12, the judge is standing at the door, the end of verse 8. The judge is standing at the door, the end of verse 12, lest you fall into judgment. Look, there is a future judgment, and even as believers, we need to be living righteously, knowing that, like, if your kids were in charge of the house as you were away, and you're like, I want the living room clean and the dishes done when I get back. The kids are going to live wisely in the time that you're away. They're going to live with your future coming. <laughs> and like, behold, she's at the door. <laughs> behold, the dad <laughs> is standing there. <laughs> well, I... It doesn't matter what good things you've done if you haven't done the good thing that they've asked you to do. Be patient and speak righteously. You're going to stand out. You're going to be different. It's not going to be easy. It will be hard. It will be worth it. This is what Jesus talked about by storing up treasures in heaven rather than storing treasures on earth. Application, wrapping it up here. This is where the sermon title comes in again. The, uh, the coming righteous judgment of God compels us to live our present lives in light of eternity. The coming, righteousness, uh, the coming righteous judgment of God compels us to live our present life in light of eternity. Uh, if you're a new believer, uh, know that that's going to have a cost associated with it. It's not going to be easy. There will be suffering if you're going to choose to live righteously in this present time. And don't let uh, money warp your view of yourself or others. Don't let the love of money lead you into temptation. Rather, put God first and store up treasure in heaven. Wait patiently and speak righteously. The Lord is coming. If you're a mature believer and you know all of these things, can I ask you, are you doing them? The blessing is not in the knowing. The blessing is in the doing. And beyond that, if you're a mature believer here, find yourself an immature believer and tell them how you have endured and seen God work in your own life. You have a testimony regarding these things. There's somebody here that needs to hear that testimony. And it doesn't necessarily need to be somebody younger than yourself. I've actually had this weird experience where I was doing, it turned into a discipleship experience with somebody who was the same age as my dad. He would teach me how to change the oil in my car, and I would talk to him about why we should pray to the Lord. And we, we were growing, but I was growing him spiritually, and he was growing me mechanically. <laughs> how, to, how to adult. <laughs> but if you're mature and you're not pouring your maturity into somebody who needs that, be exhorted this morning. I know that you know it, and I hope that you're doing it, but you better be demonstrating that intentionally to somebody. Find somebody who's new in the Lord and needs to hear what the Lord's done in your life. They need to see and hear like we can see and hear in Job's life. We could testify all morning, I'm sure, of things that we've seen and heard God do in our own life, and we'd be edified for it. It's good for us to speak it. It's good for them to hear it. If you're not a believer this morning, if the Lord is not your Lord, the Lord, uh, there is no comfort in his soon coming for you. If the Lord is not your Lord, there is no comfort in his soon coming for you. 
Uh, and this, this should weigh on our hearts as believers for the non-believers in our life. But if you're a non-believer this morning, if you're not sure that the Lord is your Lord, his soon coming, there's no, there's no comfort there for you. And you might see him today because of the traffic again. <laughs> he might just come and, and establish his kingdom today. We don't know these things. We're not promised tomorrow. The Lord is now waiting patiently for you to come. That's what he's doing presently. He's waiting for you to come to turn to him. Uh, it's easy uh, in, in, in that it's simple. Uh, the ABCs of becoming a Christian, I kind of like this because it's ABC, so I can remember that. Uh, it's admit that you're a sinner. That's the A, admit that you're a sinner. The B is believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and that God raised him from the dead. And the C is confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. This is straight from the Bible, Romans 10, 9 and 10 and verse 13. It says, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. One final proverb, and we'll close in prayer. Proverbs 11, verse 28, I think summarizes everything we've said this morning. It should have been the sermon title, but I put it at the end of my, my notes. Proverbs eleven twenty-eight: He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Proverbs eleven twenty-eight: He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word, which speaks truth to us, which runs counter to the culture that we live in. Uh, we count somebody blessed if they have more money than they know what to do with, if the clothes in their closet are rotting away because they've got so many. We say, oh, how blessed they are. But you say, oh, how blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness' sake. Father, we ask that the patience that you have with the people in the world right now would be the patience that we have with the people who are in the world right now. Lord, that that uh, love of people in your heart would become a love of people in our own heart. Lord, that we would uh, speak what is right, that we would not grumble against one another, uh, not because it wouldn't be easier to do it, and not because we might have justifiable reasons for grumbling against one another, but because that's contrary to your heart. You love each and every one of us. You love everyone in this fallen world. And we ask that you would uh, pour into us your love to overflowing. Lord, that this world would know that you love them by our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.